Hello, it's Chris here from the Sunday Movie Marathon. I just wanted to record a quick little warning that I'm about an hour into the podcast, so about halfway through, for some reason Max's audio started playing up and he just sounded like a robot. So instead of using that audio from about the hour 17 minute mark, I'm going to use the recording from our Zoom conversation that I used to sync it up. Hopefully next week we can get max's audio sorted out because we've had a lot of problems the last couple weeks um hence why we didn't upload last week um hopefully it's not too distracting well obviously it's going to be somewhat distracting this sudden leaping quality but hopefully it doesn't sound too bad i've done my best to try and make it sound okay um so hopefully next week when we have connor back on as well the podcast will be back and better than ever so without further ado Please enjoy this episode of the Sunday Movie Marathon. My name is Max. My world is fire and blood. Once I was a cop, a road warrior, searching for a righteous cause. As the world fell, each of us in our own way was broken. It was hard to know who was more crazy, me or everyone else. Welcome to the Sunday Movie Marathon. How are we doing? Hello. <laughs> I'm okay. Nice. And Connor has sadly passed away. He got COVID, so he's dead now. But we thought we'd carry on the podcast in his honour. Yeah. Maybe next week we'll try and bring him back to life. We'll resurrect him somehow. We'll find a way. Yeah. <clears throat> Of course, we tried to record the podcast last week. It didn't quite go to plan. No. No. Almost. But Almost. the last hurdle, we tripped and fell. <laughs> we recorded it all. We had it all recorded. And then it, like, my, my file crashed, unfortunately. So then we had nothing. Yeah. But if you'd have listened to that, then you'd have known what we know. And uh, it is doomed to us that it is that it is just our knowledge forevermore. But at the end of that episode, which is a shame, you know, I really like that episode. I've just been stewing over it. Yeah, it went well. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> and then Connor died. Yeah. It's been a sad week. Yeah, it has been. But if you'd listened to that, the ending of that episode, you'd know... We recommended some movies, we changed up the podcast a bit because um, what we were doing before was sort of just picking a topic every week and um, this was going to go on basically for the rest of lockdown and well lockdown's ended now and we still can't meet up inside so we figured until we're able to do that, who knows when that's going to be, we'll recommend uh, a movie each week. And uh, we'll try to watch uh, three movies in a week and then discuss them on the podcast. Yeah, so it's kind of like what we did when we did our free-for-all marathon, except we're not watching them all in a row. We can spread them out however we like. And we're not watching them together either. No, yeah. We don't get any of the funny antics that definitely happen on our marathons. (laughs) Yeah, that's what the listeners miss out on, not being there. It's a shame. If we could have a um, a group 
session with a hundred people. That's probably yeah. probably wouldn't do that, to be honest. That'd be torture. We'd need a hundred listeners to do that. Yeah. <laughs> we would. All crammed into one room. The room that's like just about big enough for us three. Yeah, barely. We all like fit onto one sofa, but we're like crammed in. Yeah. Because no one wants to sit on the camping chair. <laughs> no. So anyway, anyway we're going to go in the same order we normally go in. So me. Indeed. Um, is it Ma- Max you next, is it? Yeah, it goes Chris, Max, and then Connor. Yeah. Um, even though Connor is dead, we're still going to be talking about the film he recommended in his honour. Indeed. His memory lives on. Yeah. Yeah. It took him like a week to decide his movie anyway. But we got there in the end. Yeah. So do you want to introduce yeah. your movie? Yeah, so I picked um, a film, one of my favourite films, um, from 2014, Birdman or the Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, directed by Alejandro G. Inaritu. Basically, it's a film about an actor called Riggan Thompson, who was famous in the 90s for playing a superhero called Birdman. But um, since then, his career has kind of gone very downhill. He's trying to regain any recognition and be like treated seriously as an actor by writing, directing and starring in a Broadway adaptation of a Raymond Carver short story. And yeah, the film kind of is all about him trying to put on this play and nothing really going to plan. Um, At the same time, he basically is tormented by the voice of Birdman, the character that he played, which just like talks in his head and he keeps practically hallucinating where he like visualizes himself levitating and um, making objects move with his mind and all these different things. Um, Yeah. Also, the film is shot to make it look like it's one continuous long take. It's just one single shot, technically. Indeed. So, yeah. What did you think of Birdman, Max? Um, This is my third time watching it. Um, With you, um, this is one of my favourite movies ever, I think. I think it's um, one of Inyari 2's... No, it, it is his best movie. I think it is. It's, like, up there with, like... The Revenant is, like, second for me. Yeah, those are the only two I've seen so far. Yeah. Amoris Perez was good. Um, I thought he was um, weaker than this, though, uh, for sure. I think he really, he's really come into his element. Is it, Was this, The Revenant was the last movie he made, right? When, when was that? Like 20. Yeah, the most 17? recent. Yeah. That was 2015. It was a year after Birdman came out. Oh, Jesus. I'm expecting something else soon then. <laughs> Yeah. I'm pretty sure in the UK they both came out in 2015 because Birdman came out January 1st. Jesus. He pumped it out then. Yeah, he had a busy year. He did indeed. I um, got to see the film the day it came out in the cinema and it was a great experience. 
the cinema was like surprisingly like pretty packed. It was on one of the big screens as well. It was just really mm. weird. It's not like the sort of film you'd expect to have like a huge audience to it. But everyone seems no. to be loving it. It's got a lot of um, known actors in it. Yeah, so obviously um, Michael Keaton is the lead actor in it. Um, you've also got Zach Galifianakis, Edward Norton, Emma Stone and Naomi Watts. Yeah. So yeah, quite a, a lot of people. And they all do a brilliant um, job. Yeah, um, Michael Keaton in the film is incredible. He um, gives one of my favourite performances in any film. I got to agree with you there. Him and like he's probably, well, him and um, Edward Norton, brilliant, fantastic performances. No, I'd only seen like Edward Norton in like. I don't know, like the Incredible Hulk before I watched this movie. And Jesus Christ, he's amazing. But they're both like arseholes, character-wise. They're just yeah. Terrible people. It kind of helps that both these characters that they're playing have had like similar career arcs to the actor. So obviously Michael Keaton, he um, was big in the 80s and 90s because he played Batman in the Tim Burton movies and then his career kind of went a bit downhill after that and he struggled to get like serious roles and people didn't really take him seriously um and edward norton is like well known for being a huge arsehole on set and like basically trying to have creative control over everything and uh, it seems like the character in the film that he plays is just basically him it seems like he's almost just playing himself which i think is why he's so good in the film Wow. That takes balls to like take on a performance like that to like acknowledge that that's what he basically is like. Yeah. A lot of self-reflection that needs to go on there. <laughs> Definitely. The thing with Edward Norton is it seems like we've had this conversation with Connor a lot about whether he actually is like a good actor because Connor's only seen him yeah. in The Incredible Hulk. Um, mm -hmm. And I always say that I do think he's good when he tries. Um, and that's definitely the case in this film. And it always seems like when he works with like a really talented director like Inuritu or David Fincher or Wes Anderson, he always like puts in like everything he's got and puts on an incredible performance. It's just a shame that a lot of the time he doesn't try. Yeah, that is a shame. But he does... He does try in this, thank God. And the movie is so much the better for it. I just like, I keep thinking about yeah. like quotes from him and like, um, and uh, Michael Keaton as well. It's such a quotable movie. I forgot how funny this movie is, but it's like, there's this sort yeah, of parodic really element funny. to it. There's like this parodic element to it where, um, like you were saying, it sort of mirrors their lives. And I really think that they've sort of feed into that. It's also sort of a parody on like um, popular culture nowadays, you get all the, um, it talks about like the Marvel movies and all that. They sort of make a dig at all the other actors who do uh, the Marvel movies. Just love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy how even after like six years, this film like still feels very, very relevant. Like if this film came out today, it would still feel as fresh and like satirical on modern pop culture as it did back then in 2014 
maybe even yeah, more so now sure. that like superhero movies and stuff like that are such a bigger commodity than they were back then, even though they were pretty big. Yeah, it just gets more and more relevant as the years go on. Yeah, there's a lot of different themes, but I think the main one kind of is um, the connection between like actors and their own like personal life like their professional and personal lives and how they like clash together because obviously his daughter emma stone or is the character emma stone plays his daughter she has a big part in the film as well and she always like seems to be because she's basically his manager isn't she and she's like pretty much yeah, so she's kind of got this control over his life and he's also got his ex-wife constantly there and it seems like he can't decide whether he wants to satisfy like them or his like creative drive. Seems like he's very torn between wanting to like create something great or um, basically satisfy his family and stuff. And that's kind of created this huge, like, gap between them. They're not really that close anymore because of that. Yeah. There's, like, um, sort of a fourth wall type of thing with this movie I, I kind of got across, where the theatre is the, the setting, and that in itself is sort of a fourth wall break because as the characters make the play, they make the movie that we're watching, and it's sort of like a vice versa type of thing. I find that really interesting. Yeah, definitely. This the film in a lot of ways does actually kind of feel like a play because it's like basically all dialogue driven and also where it's like a long take. So pretty much the whole thing is like just the camera following these characters going in between scenes and talking and stuff. So the way it's structured definitely like feels very much like you're watching a stage play. Yeah. For sure. There's like an element to the play where I don't feel like um, the play is really important in a way, like both to like the audience who are watching it and well, the audience who are watching the film and like even like the actors themselves. It's not like the point because the play is like what by um like based on a short story by Raymond Carver. And it's called What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. And I thought, I only tried to like think about what that had to do with the movie overall. Maybe there's something that I'm missing here. Um, maybe you picked up on it. But it's more, I thought it was more about, um, God, what's his name? Riggan, Riggan Thompson, trying to carve his own niche out and try to prove to the world that he's more than just Birdman. Yeah. Um... I feel like the reason they picked Raymond Carver may have been just to drive home the character's like large ego because Raymond Carver is like a really renowned um, writer, like considered to be one of like the greatest American writers. So I feel like the idea of him basically adapting this short story and trying to make it his own thing is quite an egotistical thing. At least that's what I thought of maybe. Because a lot, yeah. a large part of that character is he's quite an egotistical person, and there's a lot of both humor and drama created by that. Oh yeah, 
I love the extension of like um, Birdman as a character who sort of, like when I watched that the first time, I was like, this is just like Venom, but it did Venom better than Venom before <laughs> Venom did Venom. And I, I love the character of Birdman. It's sort of like um, this thing in his head where, and I like, and on the first like couple of views, and even now, I was like, is all this stuff like real? Can he actually make all this stuff move with his mind? I, I just don't know. And um, I think on the third watch, the most recent one, I sort of sort of came to grips with the fact that probably it's not really happening. But I do still love the um, like the commentary on like superhero uh, movies with it, and also the character of Birdman who tells him things. He's like he's telling telling people like I've got this voice in my head, and then he tells me stuff, and then like he's. It's like at the beginning of the movie. This was a really shocking part of the movie. I love this. Where like, he's he's doing like a scene and this guy, he can't act for shit. He's really terrible. And Regan's like, oh fuck, I can't, can't deal with this guy. And then a light falls on his head and it almost kills him. And then he gets out and he was like, I made that happen to Zach Galifianakis. He's like, I did that. And he was like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah, I I think it's a very interesting way they brought that Birdman character in. There's multiple scenes where he like starts hallucinating and like sees Birdman and all this stuff going on. Like in the trailers, there's that scene of him walking down the street and there's like all this violence and action, like explosions and a giant bird and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's very strange, and I really love how ambiguous they make it, especially at the ending. Um, yeah. Because spoiler alert, the very last shot of the film, um, after basically Riggan hospitalizes himself and he like jumps out the window, and Emma Stone's character looks out the window and like she looks up at the sky and like smiles as if to say that everything was like true and that he actually is Birdman. And I thought that was a really yeah. interesting, ambiguous ending that they did there, where you can interpret what she's actually like seeing. Yeah, I love it. Because, like, Birdman sort of wants Riggan to feel like he's better than everyone else. He thinks that he's, like, the best. You are Birdman. He's like, you, you... There's, like, a quote where he says, this is where you belong, above them all. I was like... Because when he's, like, having this, like, trip, he's, like, flying over the city... And Birdman's sort of talking to him. And then there's there's that part where he's like asleep on the street and he wakes up after like having fallen asleep on the street. He wakes up and then Birdman, he's like walking and then Birdman's like right behind him. I love that, like the camera movements in that scene as well because it's like you sort of see him and then you do see him. And then just the, the city explodes into the, like the CG fest. And the CG is not like great in that scene I'll be honest but it's nah. sort of supposed to not be good in, in the same way yeah I don't think I think that's kind of the point of what they were going for yeah I think that sure. maybe with that scene that they were trying to like say about how like fake like superhero movies actually are how it's all just at the end of the day most of it's just all animation I think maybe that was what they were going for with that yeah there's like the part where um explosions are going off there's like a giant bird just screaming and then birdman's there is like 
this is the quote, this is what he says. They love this shit. They love blood. They love action. Not this talky, depressing, philosophical bullshit. And it's like, this is exactly what like Riggan's been trying to do the whole time. Is like this play that no one really cares about. But he's just really trying to stay relevant. And he doesn't want to be doing... Because um, I guess he sees like the superhero movies as like, you're not really a, a serious actor if you're doing those kinds of things. But that's what the people yeah. want. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of statements against um, actors and the way they act and how a lot of them don't really just care about like the art and care more about the money and stuff like that. And I think that may be what that Birdman like, voice kind of represents, where you've got Riggan who wants to do this serious play and like be treated seriously as an actor but he's got that Birdman character hanging over him basically telling him to embrace his past and look at the more more of the money side of things and do things like superhero movies maybe yeah but Riggan like knows he's past it and this is like his he's like clawing to find some sort of relevance but there's that scene where he breaks down in his room and like he just throws shit everywhere. And it's a great scene. He's like making things fly yeah. around the room. Then like Zach Galifianakis comes in. He's like, oh, are uh, you all right? <laughs> just goes back to normal. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I wasn't sure how I'd feel originally about um, Zach Galifianakis' character because obviously I thought this was going to be quite a serious movie. So I wasn't sure how he'd like be in a serious role but his character is basically just comic relief in a lot of ways yeah but quite subtle comic relief like he's not like how it would be in like something like i don't know like something like the phantom menace with like jar jar it's a comic relief doing all this dumb slapstick and stuff his character definitely has weight to him but he's more comedic than some of the other characters for sure. There's like that line where he's like, Martin Scorsese is direct is looking for actors for his new film. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> that goes along with like the pop culture the as well. Just, yeah. The script generally is just really, really well written. There's so many deep layers to it and it's so critical of actors, um, critics, just the whole like... Hollywood industry in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's like crazy how much they managed to cram into just this two hour movie. I love that scene where he like confronts the critic as well. There's like one critic and like her opinion is law basically. It's like in real life that's not what happens, I don't think. Um I don't think people hold like critics who write for like newspapers to that high acclaim in real life. At least I don't. But this, there's just this, like, I think she's more of, like, an all-encompassing thing for, like, the media and um, how, like, plays are received and how um, actors sort of, they sort of model themselves in a way that, to appease them, I guess. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah, I think in a lot of ways, like, if you read like a bad review of something, it's going to put you off watching it. 
And yeah. I think maybe that's what they were going for with that. Yeah. Like they that that person actually does have like a large impact on whether people will go and see the play or not. And I think Michael Keaton's character is just so fed up of that. Yeah. Well, he like um, takes the piss out of her writing as well. He's like, what the, what the fuck are you writing? Yeah. So he like picks up her like, no, he's like, there's nothing here about technique, structure, in uh, structure, intentions, just a bunch of like crappy opinions. And he says like, you don't risk anything by writing this review, but I have risked everything to put this play on. Yeah, exactly. It's a great statement. There was four writers on the film and it's pretty crazy that like there's that many writers yet it never like feels like muddled or anything. Like with a lot of films where there's like more than a couple writers, like there's just so many things going on and it never really like comes together well. Whereas with this film, there's a lot of things going on, but it all perfectly interlinks. There's never a moment where I feel like there's anything going on that's unnecessary. And there's never a moment where I feel like there's something going on that doesn't link on to what else, what the other things we've seen are and what else comes after that. No, well, the pace, the pacing is very brisk, I would say. Yeah. And I think that's to do with um, like the one shot aspect as well. This is like probably the best use of the one shot I've seen in cinema yeah, and definitely I watched um, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope the other month and that was like sort of like a pioneer film I think for this type of um, this type of technique to use and that worked really well in there with the type of story that they were telling so I guess like I hate when I watch movies and they try to do like a one but there's no point to it but there's really there's a point to this I think yeah yeah, I think I've seen, obviously, 1917, which was all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was that film Victoria, which is like a two-hour like thriller movie where it actually was done in one take. Like, they did the entire thing <laughs> in one take, which yeah. was pretty crazy. Jesus. That film was decent. But both of those films, I feel like if you took out that one take aspect, it wouldn't be anywhere near as like engrossing. No. Whereas this film, although that one shot aspect is a part of it, it's never like an important part of it. If it was like set up in a standard like fashion, like most films would be, I think this film would still be as great as it is. For sure. Like you can tell, or at least I can tell, when they make a cut because the camera, maybe the camera will go like really quickly. And then it will like blur a bit or like they'll open a door and they'll go down, or they'll go down the stairs. It's like consumed in darkness or something. And yeah. I don't really mind that, to be honest, because that's not it's I'm not always looking for like, oh, well, they cut there and they cut there and they cut there. It's more about how the technique relates to the story and how um, it enhances the story that's being told. Yeah. With 1917, I spent most of the film like because I wasn't really that interested in what was actually going on. I spent a lot of it, like, noticing where all the cuts were. But with this film, I would just always get, like, sucked in, and I'm always so fascinated in it. A lot of the time, I just completely forget that it's all one take. It's just, it's more subtle than anything. Yeah. I was also bored in 1917, so I was like, they cut there. Oh, they cut there as well. Yeah. And, and there's, like... 
I wouldn't have even been mad, but they like marketed that whole movie around like, oh, it's a one take movie. You guys see this? It's a one take. And I'm like, I watched it and guess what? It's not. It's not even that because it yeah. like cuts halfway through. It like cuts to complete black. <laughs> yeah, there is, um, I think, one one bit in this film where it like pans up into the sky or something and you like see like a time lapse. Yeah. And I get that because it's um, like, it's, it's, how do you tell this story if it's only over the course of literally two hours? Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of, lot going on. It's set over like a week, isn't it? Or something like that. Yeah. I love to so, say. Yeah. I love, yeah, I love. I think. The, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. I was going to say, I think the cinematography just generally is incredible. There's so so much going on and the way they craft that one shot thing is so fantastic oh god yeah there's like like i don't know if like this is like the most interesting part of it but for me it's like amazing so like there's a the scene at the end where he's in like the hospital bed and like you can just like see like the particles of dust floating around i was like jesus christ maybe you can't see that in like like a standard definition DVD or something, but I got the Blu-ray and it's like jaw dropping to me how like stunning the quality of the film is. And it's not just like how great the color is and because it is great. And it's not just how great, like that how they use the camera, but it's like the mise-en-scene, you know, and how they get like these little, these fine details. Yeah. Inaritu seems like a very meticulous director. Like this and The Revenant, it, there's so much attention to detail in literally every single shot. Yeah, for sure. I, I assume it's just like... I was just watching, I was in awe. I was like, how how hard must it have been to get these shots? Because it's crazy how, how long these shots are. Yeah, it's like one of those things where if one one person fucks up a tiny bit that's like like maybe 15 20 minutes sometimes that they yeah. have to just go back on and redo yeah it's crazy that's like a lot to do with like the framing which was astounding because it's like it's hard to like shoot like a normal movie i guess i mean i've never really tried but i assume it filmmaking is a hard business um but then to do it like this is like astounding to me. Like the framing and the blocking, incredible. Like how like you position the characters and all the props and everything. Yeah, visually, this is just an astounding like film. Like even past that one shot aspect, there's so many like beautiful moments. Like visually, I um I love the look of the scene where Edward Norton and Emma Stone are talking on the roof. Like you see the lights from the other buildings surrounding them, and it just looks really great. Yeah. Did they? Was this like an actual theater? Do you know? Uh yes. So it was shot at the James St James Theater on Broadway, and um, a right. film studio as well. Yeah, I, I saw. So I think the the stage was done at broadway theater and then i think the backstage bits were done at the film studio yeah i thought so because there's like there's one shot that always 
repeats in my mind. And I just think about it all the time. There's like it, the camera sort of floats from the outside, outside of the theater and it goes up into the sky and then it goes through like a metal grating and then through a window in Riggins' yeah. dressing room. How the hell did they do that? CG, I assume. Yeah, it's crazy. It's definitely, surely. Yeah. Yeah, to be fair, I think there is quite a lot of CG that's just used really subtly. Like, even yeah. past that like big action scene we talked about, I think there's just a lot of moments where they use it just to tie up those scenes and stuff. And yeah. unless you're There like, would have to be. Actually, actually, I was going to say, unless you're looking out for it, you wouldn't tell. But even then, I think... A lot of it you probably couldn't tell at CGI. No, it looks so good and so natural. Yeah, it's like um what um David Fincher did on Zodiac. He he used CGI loads on that film, but it's so like used so subtly you couldn't tell at all that it wasn't all real. No, yeah, I wasn't even thinking about it when I watched Zodiac. A lot of like a lot of the greatest no. CGI is just like you don't even know that it's being done. No, something like um, Endgame. There's just so much of it. It just it literally just looks like a cartoon, and it because you know it's all fake. That can take you out of the film sometimes, but something like this where it's so like used so subtly and in such like small amounts, as just like a way of like sealing the realism of the film. It never like is distracting or anything. It never takes you out. Yeah, well, unlike the Avengers movies that like they just shoot it in a green screen room, and they put like different props yeah. for set design on it, but it's basically just a a room full of green. Yeah. Um, something else I wanted to talk about on this film is the score. There's like a few bits of classical music throughout, but for the most part, it's just a like solo jazz drum performance from Antonio Sanchez and I think mm. that the music to this film is incredible I think I think it really fits the tone well and there's something about how it's just like a solo drum performance that it builds up so much tension in a lot of scenes and it never feels unnatural and it's never emotionally manipulative or anything like that. But it's it's yeah. executed really, really well. I agree. There's like like right at the beginning when the credits are coming on, these are like great opening credits as well, because it's like the drum score being played. Yeah. And, and with every beat, like a letter comes onto the screen and it like changes it up and then it it, it comes with a title and then it all like they drum again and then the title like I don't even know how to describe it really it just like not fades away but like zips away <laughs> I don't know yeah there's a really tense moment later on where everything's like super chaotic and you actually like see the drummer just performing in a room at one point I think it's a really yeah. nice touch that was crazy you like see the drummer in, in the street first I think and then you see him in the room and I'm like oh my god but this like all diegetic then was it all diegetic sound yeah was the, were they hearing it is what I thought <laughs> yeah that's something I love about it it like makes the music like almost like a secondary character 
but one that you wouldn't really yeah. like like think of when you're thinking of the film as much it makes a lot of like the technical elements feel like characters I feel like the camera in itself is also like a character like the set is a character and the the music as well and like yeah. with all this like how fast paced it is the writing goes really quickly as well I think like the dialogue and there's like this movie is hilarious, but there are some jokes that I just completely missed on my first two goes around, I guess, because everything is just so snappy and it goes so quickly. But then, like, I picked up a lot of what they were saying this time around. It was like there was like a comment that uh, Edward Norton made on like P.T. Barnum. He's like, oh, what was it? I got it here. He was like a douchebag's born every minute. That was P.T. Barnum's premise when he invented the circus. <laughs> yeah. Or like when the, yeah, those like um, the f- or like when those characters come up in those fans come up in the bar and they're like, "Who is this guy, Mummy?" And he's like, "He used to be Birdman." It's like just from that you get like a lot of commentary. Yeah, yeah. This is a very fast-paced film. Because of that, I feel like the first time around you're not going to get everything. I think I've seen it twice now and I definitely don't think I've experienced everything that there is to experience from this film I first time I saw it was when it first came out like as I said like release day and then the second time was like a couple months ago so I haven't I didn't actually end up watching re-watching it this week but it's still pretty fresh on my mind and I remember picking up so much on that second viewing that I don't know if I either forgot from the first time or just, like, didn't pick up. Yeah. But I think that's what helps the longevity of the film. Like, because there's so much going on, so much that you can pick up on. It's a film that I feel like you can probably watch over and over again and have a different experience every time. Yeah, it gets better with every watch and every year that goes by, that also makes it better because of what's happening in like the media today as well yeah definitely there's like a there's there was like i love that part where he's being interviewed by the journalist and this is like a commentary on like tabloid journalism and news media where the journalist accuses riggan of injecting pig semen in his face to make him look young and then (laughs) he's like no that's that's not true that doesn't i don't do that and she says well i'll just say that you're denying it yeah. yeah, there's a lot of satire on the media just generally. Mm. But yeah, in a lot of ways, I feel like it's, sort of, it's very much of, it, of its time. Like It feels like a 2010s film, but I feel like a lot of the commentary and satire in the film is kind of timeless. Yes, I agree. Um, I love the dynamic between Riggan and his daughter Emma Stone as well. Like, there's obviously a backstory there that we don't really like see, but just the fractured nature of their relationship, I think, is very interesting. And there's that great yeah. scene where, um, like, they have a huge like blowout argument that mm. I love. Yeah, the camera's like really like. I don't even know. Like it looked like sort of like a fisheye lens in a way, but I don't think it was. It was like 
like profile shots of the characters and then it would like turn yeah. to the other character and he's like blowing up at her because she's like smoked some weed because she's like come out of rehab and then she's like oh you're not even relevant anymore you don't even have twitter so yeah. and then she leaves she leaves and then he's like oh, fuck this and just picks up the the joint and smokes the rest of it because he's only yeah. like he's just looking out for like what it's gonna how it's gonna reflect on him as well and that like adds to like how much of an asshole he is yeah there's a few really hilarious moments like throughout like just general like great comedy setups like when he like accidentally gets himself locked out and like is in yes. his underwear and he has to walk through Times Square to get back into the theatre for the final scene yeah that was a great just scene the execution like- the execution of that yeah. from start to finish is so well set up and the payoff is great yeah, fantastic it is. There's like, he has to, he goes into the, um, he gets into the theatre, they're like, you can't go in there. They don't know that it's his play. And then like, he uses his hand as a gun. And I was like, oh my, what the fuck is he doing there? It just comes out <laughs> of the back. It's great. Yeah. That The final play scene where he shoots himself, that, that sequence always makes me so tense. Yeah. Like even like the second time when I knew what was going to happen, I was just so tense watching it. Yeah. That's a great scene. There's like, there's a part after he, he like walks through uh, Times Square in his underwear and then he he finishes the play. And then afterwards, Emma Stone's like, Oh look, you're all over the news. You're on YouTube. You've got like millions and millions of views, and then you sing her phone, and this is, I don't understand what happens here because the she's so showing him the video of him walking through Times Square, but there's like a bunch of cuts in it, and I'm thinking this happened like less than an hour ago. How like how who who cut this together for the news? people work fast like all those people yeah clearly but then that's like that great shot where it goes into it goes into the phone and then it comes out and it's a tv in the bar yeah always gets me i'm like oh my god cinema there's so many great moments like that um have you got anything else in your notes to talk about before we move on oh god I've got loads. I, I can't cover it all, to be honest. Um, <laughs> nah. I like that Edward Norton's character, Mike Shiner, he can't, he can't like get it up off stage. Oh yeah, he's, like, great he's, got, like, he's trying to have sex on, on, he's stage. on stage with Naomi Watts, and he finally like gets a hard on, and he tries to have sex yeah. with her live on stage. He does a lot of self reflection in that. I think that. Riggan kind of doesn't in a way yeah he's more set in his ways yeah definitely there's there's like this okay so this whole movie is not is not a one shot because there's it breaks it up into like there's like a montage at the beginning and then a montage at the end so I wanted to ask 
what you think that meant because there's a montage of like I'm thinking more about the end like there's the superheroes dancing on stage and then there's the jellyfish on the beach which I think that particular thing relates to when he was telling his wife that he tried to kill himself in the uh, in the sea and then there's like a meteor what do you think the meteor means I don't know it could um, be no. the um death I don't know it could represent death coming down like being a thing that's yeah. quickly coming after him could be bird yeah, I don't know it could <laughs> maybe that's something the bird man needs to save the world from maybe obviously this movie has a subtitle uh, the unexpected virtue of ignorance what do you think that means? Maybe this that uh, actors are pretty ignorant to the outside world. Or like, maybe it's like, because he's really trying to be like sort of woke in a way, where he's making fun of these like big name actors and like trying to put on his own thing. But in reality, if he just like become, just stayed as Birdman and not tried to carve out this sort of thing for himself he'd be like happier if he didn't even know about that yeah maybe I'm just coming up with this shit on the spot <laughs> <laughs> yeah I feel like there's multiple interpretations that you could have I feel like it's one of those things where there's not a clear answer yeah do you think he dies in the end who knows yeah, don't know. I feel like he probably just did fly away. Yeah, he could have done. Maybe he just grew some wings. <clears throat> he became Birdman. Yeah. Um, there's a horrible. film this um <laughs> There's a film this reminds me a lot like of like thematically with like the idea of like the actor on stage and stuff. And that's the film Opening Night, directed by John Cassavetes, which is also a really great film, which I highly recommend mm. to people listening. <clears throat> nice. Oh, there's a line also where, like, he's talking to um, his his girlfriend, I guess you could call her, or, like, a girl he had sex with who he doesn't care about. <laughs> She's like, some people paid over $500 a ticket. I'm like, what? <laughs> no, they didn't. Who knows? It's Broadway. Tickets are expensive. Especially if you get yeah, a but... good seat. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so this film won the um, Best Picture Oscar in 2014. And going through... The list, it's like, in my opinion, the best film that won in the 2010s. Yeah. But most of them aren't that good, so there's not a lot of competition. Yeah, I don't know. Do I prefer this over Parasite? I feel like maybe... Maybe I prefer Parasite a little bit more, I'm not sure. They're like on the same level for me. Both are great. Yeah. I think they're both perfect Do films, you... to be fair. The other films yeah. from that decade that won are 
either all right or not great. Yeah. Green Book. That infamous film that everyone loved. Yeah. I know, I didn't see it, to be honest, and I never will. No, me neither. I have no interest. No. Yeah, ratings? Rating, yeah. Um, Yeah, Birdman, I think it's pretty much a perfect film. I recommend it to everyone, including Connor, if he listens to his podcast, because I think it's so fast and entertaining that even though he's not into dramas and stuff like that, I think he'd enjoy it. I'm giving this a perfect five Birdmans out of five. I couldn't think of a witty choice. That's fine. Once we resurrect Connor, it'll, it'll be it'll be all right. He'll watch it then. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think this is about as good as a movie that's trying to do what this is trying to do can get. So, and I love it. I've watched it three times. I will watch it many, many more times. As I've said, I think it's Inyari 2's best movie, and I cannot wait to see what he does next. And I'm going to give this 10 Birdmans out of 10. Yay. Yeah, I completely forgot we were going for the 10 rating system. Yeah, so yeah, that's fine. 10 Birdmans out of 10. We had a conversation in the group chat yesterday about how we kept going back and forth between the ratings. Yeah. Ah, whatever. It don't matter. <laughs> yeah. So now it's your film, Max. It is indeed, it is indeed. So, if anybody listened to the last episode we recorded but didn't release, you would know that I recommended a 1975 film directed by Peter Weir called Picnic at Hanging Rock. It's about um, a group of girls... Uh, out of college who go out for lunch uh, with their college mates and their teachers to a place called Hanging Rock and uh, they have a picnic there and then four of them wander off to have a look around and uh, unfortunately they go missing and it's sort of about the the search to find them but it's probably mainly about the mystery of what the hell happened. So how do we think about this? What do we think about this movie? Um, it was all right. I don't, yeah. I don't really even know what to say about it. I, <laughs> I don't think I got the full experience of it. There was just something about it that wasn't, that didn't completely click with me. Maybe I just wasn't in like the right mood or something. Cause this is a very like strange movie. It's one that I feel like you really need to be paying attention and really be in, like, the right mood to really get everything out of it. Maybe. And probably need to watch it multiple times. I don't think it's a film that you can watch it once and get the full experience. Absolutely not. I, I've i watched this movie one time before, and it always stuck with me. I just kept going back to it, even though I have I have my problems with it. But I think the this movie is based on a book, and um, when you watch the movie, it starts with like a like a card that says 
um, like on this day in 1900, Valentine's Day in 1900, um, some girls went to Hanging Rock for a picnic and um, like some of them disappeared. And it sort of paints this as something that actually happened. And the book that it's based on goes by the same name. And it's written by Joan Lindsay. And apparently when it was released, it was getting a lot of hype because people were trying to... And this movie, I guess, when, when it was released, um, like this movie and the book were getting hype and people were trying to figure out if it actually happened or if this was based on true events or not. And Joan Lindsay, the uh, author, said that she just liked the hype so much that she never confirmed nor denied it. But I think it has been proved to be fictitious, so it's not... It didn't really happen. Yeah. Well, Hanging Rock is a real place in Australia. Yeah, they shot it on location. And there's. I was reading up on the trivia... And um, apparently um, one of the park rangers has gone on record as saying that all of the cast have returned to Hanging Rock at some time or another. So I guess it's just this this movie really had an impact on the actors as well. Yeah. Visually, it is yeah. beautiful. It's such a well-shot movie. There's multiple mm. like shots that are like almost like a painting in like how well crafted and beautifully executed they are yeah for sure there's like i th- I, th- I read that um to get that sort of dreamlike quality that the film really has in spades like the cinematographer or the cameraman um put like a um, sort of a thin veil over the camera at times to sort of give it like a wavy um sort of misty kind of look yeah i can see that do you think that's what they did on that scene in Paranormal Ascendancy where it's a flashback and the screen looks blurry? No, I don't think they put any effort into that movie whatsoever. I was saying, the executive producer, Patricia Lovell, um, was one of the people who visited the site um, 10 years after the filming, had, uh, the shooting had ended. And she said that she got so frightened when she was there that she like left almost immediately. And I, I kind of get where she's coming from. It's a, it's a quite a creepy, strange movie. You were saying that it's sort of like Twin Peaks vibes. Yeah, uh, that was less because of like it's creepy and more because of like, especially in the first half before the girls go missing, the acting and writing is very melodramatic in a lot of ways. I don't know yeah. if that was like intentional or not. But that gave me a lot of Twin Peaks vibes because that show is basically a parody of soap operas. So the writing and acting is like very much trying to copy that that vein. And that's kind of what I got from this in a lot of ways. But it definitely does have a lot of that weirdness and eeriness to it as well. And obviously mm. that scene where they go missing is really creepy. Just the girls like slowly walking away with like white noise playing yeah there's like i love how it's shot as well when they're walking up the rock because it's like the rock is sort of like this imposing figure and it's shot from like above you can see the girls walking um through 
the paths from above and it's shot through like dark crevices so it's like it feels like something's watching them or like maybe the rock itself is watching them yeah yeah that whole sequence is really great yeah for sure there's like there's um I'm going to pick up on what you said about like the melodramatic nature of it. I completely agree with you. And I don't know if it's intentional. I feel like it, it, it might have been. There's like a lot of like characters who are very like over the top. I th- I'm thinking like mostly of like, what's the character? Mrs. Appleyard, who is like the head teacher. She's very yeah. cartoonish, very cartoonishly strict. There's like a line at like the beginning where they're about to go to the hanging rock and they're all getting in the carriage and she's like standing on the step. She says, I have instructed mademoiselle that as the day is likely to be warm, you may remove your gloves. Once the drag has passed through Woodend, you will partake of luncheon at the picnic grounds near the rock. I'm like, who talks like that? <laughs> luncheon. Who uses the word luncheon? <laughs> There was also that girl that went with them to the Hanging Rock who was, like, intentionally quite annoying and, like, ran away screaming yes. at one point. She was very, very Edith. over the top and cartoony. Yeah. Yeah. Edith. Did you notice that she had been dubbed? I didn't, but that makes a lot of sense thinking back. I did think she sounded yeah. really weird. It didn't really match up with her actual, like talking no she was very annoying that's like my biggest problem with this movie i think is like just her as a character i do not <laughs> like edith no i didn't like her either i think my biggest issue with it was that after all the girls went missing i didn't find myself as interested in the story anymore and i'm not really sure why that was I just there was mm. something about it. It just didn't like hold my attention quite as well as a, I think it could have done. I think after that sequence, the melodramatic nature isn't quite as strong, and it just ends up kind of feeling more like a just a, a old period piece drama more than anything. But I think a lot of my lack of interest may have just been that I wasn't really sure what to expect because i've heard a lot of people saying like the whole film is like was like that that scene like the whole thing's super tense and almost like a horror movie and i think that's kind of what i was expecting so i think if i go in a second time knowing everything to expect i think i'd find myself a lot more interested in engrossed in what was happening that's fair i yeah I don't share those same sentiments. I've kind of engaged like the whole way through. I do think that the movie drags a bit and I thought that for how long this movie is, it's like an hour and 42 minutes. Maybe it could have been cut down a bit because there are points where I get, I kind of drop off. Yeah. Cause the um, original theatrical version is like an hour 52 minutes or something. And then there's the director's cut, which is seven minutes shorter because the director felt that there was a lot of stuff that doesn't really, didn't really add anything and like removed from the pace. So I watched the director's cut. So I'd be interested to see what the original version's like. 
Yeah. I didn't even know that I was watching the director's cut. I guess it's just more common than the theatrical. Yeah, from the sounds of things, that's like the more readily available version. Which is a bit weird. Yeah. This movie is on YouTube think, as well. I think... So I think that's yeah. that's the director's cut on YouTube also. Yeah, it is. Because I think that's taken from the Criterion Blu-ray from America, which is just a director's cut. Yeah. I think with all the director's cut releases, though, they've got like all the bits they cut out like as deleted scenes on the DVD. Mm. Yeah. After I watched this, I instantly just bought the Blu-ray. I was like, if I like this again as much as I did, I'm just going to buy the Blu-ray. And I did. I did like it exactly, probably more yeah. than I liked it the first time. So I do think that there are now moments... you can actually there own are, a copy of it that works. Yeah, Jesus Christ. I bought like the DVD and it didn't even work. It just skipped. It kept skipping. I was so mad. <laughs> yeah, that does sound really annoying. So as much as I hate Edith as a character and um, was very happy to see her slapped, um, she says a lot. Of, <laughs> that, like, that scene was great. I loved that scene. Yeah. I was like, yes, stop being so annoying. She she says a lot of weird stuff. So she's taken back to the rock as they're like looking for the girls. And um, there are a few things that she says that sort of, didn't really understand why they were relevant or like what they could mean. She says that she saw a red cloud over her. She remembers like a red cloud. And I looked up what like the meaning of red clouds was or like what could cause a red cloud. And I didn't really find anything. Just like, but like I just found on Google that red clouds, if they were to happen, would probably be more prominent in the early hours of the morning or in the evening where like the sun would shine in such a way as to give off like an orangey red hue. So yeah. I was like, well, but they go there in like the midday in, in midday. I'm like, how did you see that then? And maybe I'm reading too much into that. I don't know because they never really bring it up. It's again. very it's menacing. Just like one passing thing. <clears throat> yeah, it is. And that's where I sort of got like, um, kind of a spiritual kind of vibe because I don't, I feel like, like I have like a couple of theories, but I'm not entirely sure that really like all of them hold weight because when they get there, they all check their watches and they're like, Oh, my watch is frozen on them. 12. And everybody's watches had frozen on 12. And they were like, well, maybe it's like, some sort of like magnetism issue with the rock. And I feel, I thought maybe if you go deep enough into the rock, it, that would like the, maybe the, the metal in the rock or like the magnetism could affect, could have affected their minds in such a way. Yeah. Sure. So like what do maybe you think they were influenced by something spiritual? Oh God, what do oh, I, I don't know. I do not know, honestly. I still don't know. Um, I think that... Because they find one of them. And that was like a great scene as well. Where the... Um, 
what's his name, Albert, finds um, Irma in the rock after the, the posh guy has been like looking for her or whatever. He's gotten himself in a bad way. And that was like a crazy scene. It was like shocking to me on the second time around. He's like, oh my gosh, he's like right there. And like they get her back to the, um, or like a hospital or something. I'm not sure if they take her back to the college, but she doesn't remember anything, which also adds to the mystery. I'm like, oh, you can't even give us anything then. This film won't let up for a second. Just tell me what happened. But in another way, I kind of don't want to know what happened. And um, they, they, there's like a doctor looking her over and he's, he's like, she has no physical ailments besides like a bruised head and damaged nails and hands where she's like been scratching at something, but there was like no damage to her feet. And they make a big deal of um, when they're going up to the rock, they all take like their tights and their shoes off. I was like, what the hell's happening there? And then Edith makes a big thing of it. She's like, hey. oh God, I've got the um, quote here actually. Because <laughs> um, it like really stood out to me. I was like, stop being so annoying again. God. She was like, where on earth are they going without their shoes? Oh, just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was weird that like just really loud and obnoxious about that character. Yeah, I don't know. I guess like the dubbing, the dubbing actress just didn't. I even feel like she didn't even watch the movie. Honestly, she just like red lines in like a like a booth or something. I don't know. Maybe. Well, I imagine they'd have to watch the scene while she's saying it, so it syncs up, at least somewhat. Oh, I don't even know if it does that, to be honest. No. But yeah, there was like no damage to her feet. So that's where I feel like a sort of more spiritual thing comes into it, a more supernatural angle, perhaps. Because I'm like, there's like literally, because they, they mention it. So it's like, this, it's it's something to do with that. So I feel like maybe it's not, as cut and dry as like, oh, they were kidnapped. I think it maybe they were abducted by aliens. It could be. As ridiculous it, and far-fetched yeah. as it sounds, that's kind of what I thought. Especially when you've got that guy, the person at the end, who falls in the greenhouse. Like they find in the greenhouse yes. at the end. That's what I thought. There's maybe like a they scene. dropped. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's Sarah. She was um she was found in the greenhouse dead, and um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you got this um, from a first watch. I don't think I did, even though it's like blisteringly obvious to me now. But I felt like Sarah and Miranda, who disappears, were in a relationship. If you got that, no, I didn't get that. Because at the beginning Maybe. we see like. And this is a great shot as well, because in the beginning we see um, Miranda uh, in two mirrors. There's like a mirror. She's sitting at like a like a desk with a mirror on it. And in the bigger mirror, you see Miranda talking to Sarah and they're both in the mirror. But then there's a smaller mirror, like a makeup mirror um, off to the side. And you only see Miranda's face like in the whole thing. I love that shot. 
but she's like talking about like how much she loves her I think or like she has to move away and she loves her I think so I was like yeah that that sort of gave that off to me yeah they get to maybe like, yeah they get to hanging rock and because it's Valentine's Day they have a cake in the shape of a heart and Miranda cuts the cake she's like to St. Valentine and she gets like this sharp knife and just cuts it right down the middle and I thought that was quite thematic as well. Because it was like... Because Sarah has to stay behind. Could she... I don't know. She had to, She was naughty or something. I don't know. And... Um, <laughs> so it's like... It's that. Um, that sort of ties in with the the heart-shaped cake. Um, and when, when she cuts the cake, it's like... Sort of breaking the heart of Sarah, perhaps. But that's like a thing that I picked up on like this time around where I had, I felt like they were in a relationship together. Yeah. Uh, what, watching the film, I definitely, I could tell the whole time there was a lot of stuff that I was missing. Like mm-hmm. thematically, I feel, and symbolism wise, I feel like there was a lot of stuff going on that I guess I wasn't in the right headspace at the time to fully pick up and analyze maybe i definitely feel like re-watching it i would definitely enjoy it more and i think i'd understand a lot more than i did yeah i would but, recommend watching yeah. it again yeah maybe it, a later i date. can't say it's a bad movie at all even if i didn't have like the mm. greatest time watching it i could tell that a lot of care and love was put into it and yeah it's very creatively well done and there's so much going on that i feel like it's one of those films you can re-watch multiple times and pick up loads of different things and break down loads of things yeah i got a lot of um like homosexual vibes from a couple of characters so you got like miranda and sarah and then um there were those two guys like albert the um, Australian guy and then this like English posh guy and they were like yeah I don't even know what happened they like just met and Albert's like swinging this wine out of a bottle and they and they like share the wine and he's like makes like a kind of big deal about like rubbing it off at first on his when Albert hands him the wine glass the bottle even he like makes a deal of like rubbing it off on his jacket before because he doesn't want to get like saliva on him his saliva on him I guess it's like that's sort of like they're kissing but then like after a while he just doesn't bother doesn't bother yeah there was definitely something up with those characters they were very strange they yeah they were they were very strange indeed and like but then they they're discussing the disappearance of the girls and um because they saw them on the way while the girls were going to Hanging Rock. And, um, God, there's like, is it like a contradictory statement to what I've just said, but they're like checking them out. And like, Albert's like, <laughs> this is a great line as well. In like this really heavy Australian accent, he goes, she'd have a nice pair of legs all the way up to her bum. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> Why the hell did you that say that? <laughs> the other guy's like I'd rather you didn't say anything 
I'd rather you didn't say crude things like that, Albert. He's like, I say them, you just think them. Yeah. Yeah. They see I a lot of like swans as well. Yeah, I noticed that as Go well. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I was literally just going to go back to my point of messing a lot. I don't know what that yeah. was. There's, yeah, I didn't notice it on the first go round, but there were a lot of swans in this movie. And like the, was he English? The English guy just keeps seeing these swans. And I'm thinking, what the hell, what's up with these swans, man? And there's like a, a shot towards the end. This is a, this is a, one of the weirdest shots I think you're in the movie. Probably the weirdest shot that I saw. He's lying in bed. It's like nighttime. But he's like lying awake. And the camera pans over to the foot of the bed. And there's just a swan there on his bed. Yeah. What the hell? Why is there a swan here, man? What does that mean? I don't know. What do swans represent, I guess? I have no idea. I should have Googled that. But that would be like very superficial. I don't think that would yield many results. Nah. Maybe they were the girls. They got turned Maybe. into swans. That's what happened to them. Yeah. They turned into swans by aliens. <laughs> that would be a very interesting There's... direction for the film to take. <laughs> it would be. Who knows? Maybe it did happen. We don't know. Maybe. There's like a lot of stuff that they say when they're at the rock, the girls who disappear. And it's very, very strange and poetic, I think. Um, there's like one of the girls is like surprising that she sees like two people having like a picnic at the bottom of the rock. And she says, uh, surprising how many human beings die without purpose. Though this, though it is probable, they are performing some function unknown to themselves. And I'm like, that sort of feeds into, like, their own situation as well. Yeah. Or like when Miranda says, everything begins and ends at exactly the right time and place. Like, there's a lot to read into here. I'm not entirely sure what it means, though. Yeah, I'd be interested to in reading the book as well and see how many similarities there are between the film and the book. Yeah, for sure. I probably will read that at some point. Yeah. There's like and a there scene also that TV when, show um, you found yesterday. Yeah, they like adapted this to a TV show again with Natalie Dormer. I don't know. Don't think I'll watch it. Maybe I'll watch a trailer. Yeah, she plays Mrs. Appleyard. Oh, what? Such a really? weird choice for her. Yeah, I would have thought they weird. would have had someone older to play it. Yeah. That, like, I feel like a lot of her character is to do with her age as well. Yeah, definitely. Very strange. Don't know if I'll watch that, though. No, There's, like, a scene best when... To stick with this. Yeah. There's a scene when the uh, guy goes up to the... to the Hanging Rock... Looking for the girls. Because, like, I don't know, he just... He doesn't even know them, but he's like, 
oh, I'm, I'm wake up in a sweat every night thinking about whether they're dead or not. I'm like, you don't, you don't even know these girls. You like saw them one time skipping across some stones and then like, you were like, oh, they're hot. And then that was it. What attachment do you have to these girls? But he goes up to the rock anyway, whatever. And risks his life. And he gets, he gets fucked up by this rock, man. It bruises everywhere. And then he like falls asleep and he has like, See, I don't know if he is hearing what we're hearing in that moment because they they repeat a lot of the lines or like there's like a flashback to like when the characters were saying the lines when they were on the rock at the beginning of the movie. And I'm like, well, what? how does he know about this? He didn't. He wasn't there. Is the rock telling him? I don't know. How can a rock speak like that? Maybe he's one with nature. He can hear the rocks. Yeah. But then if he... It, it's a thing that we're like... If it's not for him, then it's for us. And I would rather... Yeah. I don't like it when films do that. When they like reference like lines earlier to make the audience like understand or like jig that, jog their memory. I'm like, well, with the, another viewing, like you'd, you'd understand this. Or like you'd sort of link them together. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, sometimes it just feels like they're talking down on us when they repeat repeat lines earlier. Yeah. I think... God. So there's like a thing, there's like a side plot with Sarah being expelled from the college. And I'm thinking, what does this have to do with the story and the mystery? Did you feel yeah. like it like served the plot at all? Because I kind of thought that it didn't really. No, I think that was also one of the reasons I was less invested in a lot of the second half, is that there was a lot of stuff going on that I didn't really think had anything to do with the actual mystery. And I didn't find it as interesting. Like, I understand that there's obviously yeah. characters that they have established, and a lot of the film isn't, like meant to be completely about the mystery I just felt like some bits like that were a bit pointless yeah. that was where I was like watching it and I thought wow if I were watching the director's cut then this would probably be taken out but I guess that was the director's cut so it's just that's the movie Yeah. shame I guess Peter Weir, Weir just really cared about that bit yeah there's also like a scene in the greenhouse where like these two guys are just talking about what could have happened to them. And like, it serves no purpose in the story other than like establishing that there is a greenhouse there. Yeah. That might have literally just been there for set up for the last bit. Yeah. I feel that dead. When I find this person now. That probably is what it is. Um, there's like a part where Edith says that she saw one of the teachers, Mrs. McCraw, going up the hill. She was coming down. And because she goes missing as well. So you've got the three girls that went missing and then the teacher as well. And only one of them comes back. But she, she was like, oh, I can't say what I saw because it's, it's very naughty. You're like, well, you have to tell me because it might aid the investigation. She said that um, 
well, she had no skirt on. So I think there's, there's a lot of emphasis on, because when Irma came back, I think she also didn't have a skirt on. Like, because they took their shoes off and they took their tights off. And I guess like the skirts came off as well. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened. They were being like summoned or something by some sort of alien, I guess, who wanted their clothes off. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think with um, that, the, have you said homosexual relationships possibly between the two girls and the two guys? Do you think maybe that could be a big theme of the film? Like just general sexuality? Because obviously the film's set on round Valentine's Day as well. I think they go missing on Valentine's Day. Yeah. So possibly that could be a big theme as well. That could all draw into it. That a lot yeah. of the films about sexuality and relationships. Yeah. It was like a like a hidden theme. Yeah. There's like and also with with those two relationships that I brought up between um Sarah and Miranda and Albert and the uh, English guy whose name I didn't learn. Um, but at the end, Albert is telling uh, the guy that he had a dream. He was like, well, it doesn't mean anything. He says that um, he saw his sister, his sister came to him and she said that she couldn't stay long, but she'd come a long way and now she must go. And she sort of looked quite like misty. Um, you don't see it, but you know how he describes it. And he says that her name was Sarah and that the last time that he saw her was at the orphanage. So you've got this tie-in where Sarah and Albert are related. And then as he tells this story afterwards, we, we learn that um, she has died. Yeah very strange that connective connective thing there yeah there's a lot of strange things going on in the film it's just a a strange film it is a strange film what do you think happened to Sarah I have no clue aliens I, mean, I know again. she dies I feel like Mrs Appleyard is very intent on her licking and I'm not sure that there is like much cause for this but at the same time, what happens sort of leads me to believe it. So Sarah's body is found and she's dead in the greenhouse and it looks like she's fallen from the window. And um, like the next shot we see is Mrs. Appleyard. And she's just sort of sitting at her desk. She's dressed all in black. Do you think she pushed her? Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. I think she, she might Could have, honestly. Yeah, that would make sense. Because she's like someone who, yeah, she's like someone who, like, doesn't even care about these girls who are missing. She's just like, well, yeah, there's like, when Irma turns up, she's like, well, this is worse now that only one of them has turned up. Like, parents aren't enrolling their children in my college anymore. And, um, like, sooner or later, this is, this is going to have to close and I like, will have nothing. And she's a very bitter character, I thought. Yeah. Very, very over the top. 
And I do, I do like her, I guess, but she's she's very cartoony over the top. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know if I get any more, any more to say. Um, yeah, I had a lot less to talk about. I wanted more just to hear what you had to think, so yeah. I can go into it with a different frame of mind next time. Yeah, there's like there's a like an emphasis on. I don't really have a lot to say on this, but Mademoiselle, uh, the French teacher, she had like a couple of lines where she said, "Oh, now I know." that Miranda is a Botticelli angel. And I looked up like what the hell like a Botticelli angel was and what it meant. I didn't really get anywhere with it. I was like, okay, I guess that means something. And there's like, before that, Miranda walks off and she's like, oh, don't worry about us, mademoiselle. And she like, briefly, she like looks at the other girls that are going up to the rock and she like smiles. And then she's like, um, we shall be gone only a little while. And at that moment, I was like, oh, my God, she's going to kill them. Even though I had seen the movie before, yeah. I was like, oh, my God, she's going to kill them. That was what I thought watching that bit. Oh, my God. Maybe she was the alien the whole time. Maybe. Who knows? She had a little flying saucer on top of the roof of the building, and she yeah. just flew over and abducted them. Oh, my God. The metal in the rock. That's the flying saucer. Yeah. <laughs> We're really getting to the bottom of this now. <laughs> we figured it out. <laughs> I don't ever need to see this movie again. I know exactly what happened. Yeah. I think you should write to Peter Weir and tell him your theory and see if he replies saying that you're right. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. He didn't write the book. I'll write to the author if you're still alive. Um... Who knows? She I don't know. is not. Oh, she died in the eighties. Oh God! Really soon after this, then? Yeah, so less than like nine years after the film came out, she died. God. Wow. But wow. Peter Weir's still kicking, still making films every once in a while. Oh, nice. Good for him. Have you seen any of his other films? No, I have not. But. I will probably check them out, to be honest, because I really like yeah. this. So, of his other films, I've seen Dead Poets Society, The Truman Show, and oh, Master and Commander. All three of them are completely different movies. Oh, yeah. I've seen The Truman Show. That's I brilliant. completely forgot he directed that. Yeah. That's an amazing film, too. Yeah. Yeah, I love The Truman Show. That's probably my favourite of the films he's done. Yeah. But it seems like a director where he doesn't have like a distinct style. Everything's like so different from each other. Yeah. At least from what I've seen. Like a, like a Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> but Kubrick kind of has his own style in some ways. Yeah. Oof. Is there anything else you have to say about the film before we get to the ratings? I do not. So let's get on to the writing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One other thing I wanted to bring up is apparently the director, Sophia Coppola, was heavily inspired by the film. Mm -hmm. And she did a film called The Virgin Suicides, which in a lot of ways reminds me heavily of this film. Yeah. 
that was a really good film but there's a lot of similarities in the film in that film to this that i thought of while watching this film yeah cool do we want to get onto ratings yeah so um I definitely feel like I missed a lot, as I've said already. I don't think it's a bad movie at all. I think it's actually a very, very good film. I just don't think I was in the right headspace at the time. I don't think I was paying full enough attention to really pick up on everything that the film was trying to say because there's so many different themes and a lot of different imagery and clear subtext that we've broken down here. But I feel like there's a lot more to pick up on. So for now, I'm going to give it seven picnics out of ten but nice. possibly on a second viewing, that'll be more. Nice. Yeah. Um, obviously, this is my second watch. I picked up a lot more. Um, my rating hasn't really changed. Um, I still drop off every so often. I do think it could have been shorter, even though this is the shorter version, but maybe it could have been cut down a little bit more because there are scenes that don't twig with me as much. But overall, I find the mystery element very um enthralling very um creepy and haunting i love the score uh which i'm not sure we talked about all that much but that's it's amazing there's like a yeah it has a good score definitely really haunting and um great use of pan flute too i love that because i don't yeah you don't really hear that sound in um maybe normally so to for that to elicit a very haunting and um eerie vibe is very interesting to me. Um, I've ordered the Blu-ray, so I'm going to watch it again. And I think the fact that you don't really don't ever know what happened, I was kind of annoyed with that in the first watch, but not really at all this time. So you can sort of come up with your own ideas and your own theories. Um, like when it ended, I just sort of sat there in awe. It was like really sort of chilled to to my core, and um, yeah, I love this movie for what it is, and I will give it eight picnics out of ten. Yeah, I think we were saying earlier that Connor would have hated this film. Yeah, it's not really his vibe. Um, it's very slow, and it does look like it was made in the seventies, and um, that yeah. could be a turn off for some people. But I was and like you them. said, they never like solved the mystery by the end, and I feel like he would have been really frustrated by that, like spending all that time for not even some payoff. Yeah, it's it's not a payoff, but it's also kind of a big payoff in a way. Yeah. So I feel like if you just like they were like, oh, and they were abducted and killed, and here are their dead bodies, you'd be like, all right. <laughs> Yeah, I think it would have taken away, to be fair. Yeah, for sure. Do we want to get on to the next recommendation, which was Connors? Yeah. Um, it was Connors. Do you want to go through this? Yeah, sure. So the film Connor picked is the 2008 action comedy Tropic Thunder, directed by Ben Stiller. Um, I don't know why he picked it. I think he picked it because he hadn't seen it before. Um so yeah it's basically a parody in a lot of ways of vietnam war films it 
features a group of actors played by Ben Stiller, Jack Black, Robert Downey Jr., Jay Baruchel, and Brandon T. Jackson, all of which are like very like prima donna actors, like who are making this Vietnam War film directed by Steve Coogan. And basically, the film is going really badly. They spent loads of money on it. And they decide instead of spending more money to get terrible results, they'll just um, drop them in the middle of the jungle with hidden cameras and basically film guerrilla style and basically try and get like real reactions out of them. But when they start doing this, instantly... Um, Steve Coogan steps on a landmine and dies, which they believe to be part of the film. And it turns out that they've been dropped in the middle of the Golden Triangle uh, area where there's multiple like tribe people. There's a gang there called Flaming Dragon who have loads of heroin and stuff. And they start like really fighting them with their weapons. And yeah... It's kind of them trying to go through the shooting of the film, not realising that the people attacking them are actually real people, like, actually trying to murder them. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen this movie before. I summed that up. Yeah. I've seen this movie before a long time ago, um, so I didn't really remember it. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of it, if I'm being completely honest. No. So I remember seeing it like not long after it came out and yeah. just now watched, I think I saw a couple of times because I quite liked it at the time when I was like 11, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I rewatched it last year and I ba- like barely remember watching it at all then. So I wasn't sure what my opinion would be and so I was very, very mixed on it. I feel yeah. like there's there's some of this film is like really, really funny and really well done. But a lot of it just is so tedious and unfunny. Yeah, I would say most of the comedy does not really work for me. If if I'm being... no, um, this movie tries to it's sort of like a one big parody of like war movies. But like, what I want from a parody more is that it has something to say. <clears throat> it has something to say about like the movies it's parodying. But this kind of wasn't really very clever. Which is like, remember this from this, remember this from this. Yeah, definitely. There's like never a point where they're like, it's just, it just all feels like they're just trying to recreate like scenes from like Apocalypse Now or Platoon or whatever, rather than like trying to make a joke like based around it or trying to make fun of it or any way. Yeah. Like even some of the worst parody movies, like, shit like epic movie and stuff a lot of the time they have jokes like that where they actually do make fun of what they're actually trying to parody but this film just didn't do that yeah it just felt like if you haven't watched a lot of these films you're not gonna get most of the jokes and even if you have watched a lot of those films all you're gonna get out of it is just like oh i I remember that from that vietnam war film yeah. It never really feels that clever. I am not a person who is really big into like war movies, unless they're like really good, you know, unless they like really stand out. Like a movie I love uh, that's set in like wartime is like Come and See. 
I feel like that's a big diversion yeah. from the kind of basic war movies, um, like 1917, like, um, I don't know, Hacksaw Bridge or whatever. They just don't really do anything for me. And since I haven't seen a lot of the movies that this film, Tropic Thunder, parodies, I feel like that's why a lot of the comedy was kind of lost on me. And in, and in the same way, it's like, this is very, very, very much a, very much a bro movie. I got a very bro-ish vibe with it. So it's like a lot of the jokes are just like, haha, Jack Black fat, Jack Black farting. Hey, isn't that funny? Jack Black has a heroin addiction, like something like that. Just like very basic, like childish humor that I don't think works. Yeah. There's not a single like f- like proper female actress in the film. No. Like, all the female actresses are like very like small characters, but nearly all of them are male. Like I'm on Wikipedia at the moment and it's got the list of like actual named characters and all of them are male. Yeah. I was so mad when like there's like a, a half second of um Yvette Nicole Brown, who I know from community. And she's yeah. she's a good actor. Um, but you see her for like half a second and then she's literally like the curtain closes on her in like a, the reception and she's, she like turns and then she doesn't get any lines whatsoever and that's it. We're done with her. <clears throat> yeah. That was a shame. She's a great actress. She's really, really funny in like everything I've seen her in. Yeah. I just don't care. <laughs> I, I think the cast for the most part is all right. Um, I just feel like a lot of the characters are like not really characters at all. Like especially Ben Stiller's and Jack Black and even Jay Baruchel's character, they seem to just be kind of written around who they are and what their comedic style is. Like Jack Black's character is just seems to intentionally be that really like loud, shouty person and Ben Stiller's character is like the arrogant guy who's like, a huge arsehole and Jay Baruchel's like the really awkward guy but I don't think they even like a lot of the jokes yeah. even work for their characters they just seem to be the most surface level jokes like Jack Black his most of his arc in the film is literally that he's a coke addict and a bird no it's a bat steals his coke halfway through the film and yep. he loses all his coke and he's like going through withdrawal. And literally the only, it's a joke that keeps coming back, but the only, the joke is essentially just that he's going through withdrawal. So he's like screaming and shouting. And it's like the most obnoxious part of Jack Black's humor. Yeah. And Ben Stiller's character is kind of similar. Whereas... He is literally just being that arrogant arsehole and his character just ends up being super unlikable. He does, yeah. Because he's not funny at all. He's just an arsehole. He came across as very stupid to me as well, his character. Very, very silly. Yeah. <clears throat> because he can't really differentiate. He was like the biggest um, example of a character who could not differentiate between what was happening in real life and what was the movie that he thought he was making. Yeah, his character seems to basically just be a plot device in a lot of ways like if he wasn't there then the plot wouldn't keep moving so they'd all be smart enough to realize that what's going on isn't supposed to happen yeah 
And I, I do also think that once he breaks away from the group as well and goes on to do his own thing, the film gets even worse. Yes. Like, I don't think the group dynamic's great, but there are some actual, like, really funny bits there. I think the the dynamic between him and Robert Downey Jr. is really funny. That whole sequence where they're talking about what it takes to, like, be a proper actor and about how the reason he didn't get the Oscar is because he went full retard. Stuff like that is like genuinely really, really funny. And that's yeah. like the best bits of the film. But after he breaks away and does his own thing, it just gets really dull. And there's just not really much that goes on after that. Everyone knows you never go full retard. <laughs> yeah. That bit is like genuinely really funny. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. Um, was probably the best character in this. I would say he's definitely he's black the entire time he's had like pigment augmentation on his skin to where he has to he he's playing like a black character and he's in character the entire time and then at some point they're like well, you don't we know this is not the movie anymore why are you doing this he's like i don't even know yeah i think his character is like the most like genuinely interesting like past the comedy bit like he has yeah. a genuine arc and by the end of the film he realises that he doesn't have to completely disappear himself into these characters because it's not really like proper acting like you literally when you literally become this person it's less like acting than when you like are able to switch between the two and there's a scene yeah. where he literally just starts taking off like all his like his costume and he's like switching between characters that he's played before finally becoming himself yeah. and I think that arc's actually pretty decent yeah he's but the best part of the movie this, sure. yeah the character and how he's a statement against the lengths that method actors will go to is like the smartest bit in the film like the idea of him like literally changing his skin colour then the dynamic between him and brandon t jackson who's like an actual black person yeah. is getting offended by stuff that stuff's really funny yeah oh god there's that like great great line very like uh brandon t jackson says like the n-word in front of him and then he, he like robert downey jr like hugs him like really tight he's like for 400 years that word has kept us down I'm like what the fuck <laughs> And there's the bit where Ben Stiller like says you people just in a sentence and then Robert Downey Jr. is like, what do you mean by you people? And then Brandon's like, what do you mean by you people? That bit's great yeah. as well. Okay. Yeah. There's like, when, when he takes his um, outfit off eventually, he like takes his wig off, his facial hair, and um, he starts, like his skin starts getting lighter. And I'm like, how the hell does that happen because he's undergone like literal surgery to get himself turned yeah. black. That should not be happening. There's, there's like a, no, that was a bit weird. There's like a part where he's going undercover as like a farmer and he's wearing a mask and he's talking to the, um, like the kid in the heroin uh, factory or whatever. And he's wearing the mask, but he's, you can see that he's white. He's just white. He's like wearing mascara, but he's white. And then he takes his mask off afterwards and he's black again. Yeah, it was really weird that, but I noticed that as well. Yeah. It's very obvious. I don't know why they why they chose to do that. They didn't have enough black makeup. No. <laughs> yeah. What I did like about um the 
the characters is that most of them are actually like parodies of real actors like they're all kind of modeled on people like how jack black's character is kind of like modeled around eddie murphy in a lot of ways because the opening of the film is like trailers of all the films that everyone's in and jack black's one is the fatties fart too which is like a parody of the nutty professor now eddie murphy does like multiple characters in films and plays fat people in them all um robert downey jr's characters also modeled around daniel day lewis russell crowe and colin farrell apparently mm-hmm. um i love that trailer as well yeah like that was the only they showed a lot of trailers at the beginning for like movies that those um characters were in and i didn't really care for like really any of them apart from uh Kirk Douglas, played by Robert Downey Jr., his trailer, where it's like it's like this homosexual, um, like Catholic thing, with Tobey Maguire, who's just in there, <laughs> like this one. That's thing. great. There's a lot of really weird cameos from people throughout the film as well. Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise. He's yeah, I genuinely really love Tom Cruise in this film. I think yeah. it's quite hilarious. He's one of the best characters, even though we don't really get to see yeah. him. He's really beefy. I was like, why is he so beefy? He's like really yeah. beefy and hairy. <laughs> like, did he like jack up for this movie or something? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. It's the sort of thing he'd do. Yeah. But I really liked him. Just shouting. Yeah, I don't I don't like Tom Cruise in most things, but I really enjoy him in this film. Yeah. I, I get why people would be turned off from him he's sort of like the action guy but i do really like tom cruise i think um he's great in this he's great in like magnolia he's really good in eyes Wide. yeah he's incredible magnolia yeah eyes wide shut he's really good um yeah and i as as much as i have problems with the mission impossible movies that's sort of where he seems to be most in his element i really i do enjoy him in those because he's like a like an action star you know yeah he's not bad in those films Um, Matthew McConaughey is also in it. He's yeah. um, Ben Stiller's agent. He's all right in it. I don't think he's as great as he is in some films, but he, yeah, he's pretty funny at some points. Yeah, yeah, he has his has his bit with the TiVo. That's like his arc. He's trying to get TiVo to Ben Stiller. I'm like, dude, I don't care about this. <laughs> he like goes yeah. to to the jungle where they're at, and he's like, I finally got you TiVo. I'm like, what the hell? Why the hell is this guy here? Then he throws the TiVo. Yeah. He throws the TiVo up in the air as the kid. All right, <clears throat> this is like one of my favorite parts of the movie. Okay, he throws the TiVo box at the the RPG that the child is firing. That I don't know why a heroin plant would have an RPG, and I don't know how a child would be able to operate one. Like no matter how much training he had, he's very small, very small child. And then it catches on the TiVo box, and it saves them. It's like an ex machina sort of thing. Yeah, that bit was so bad it made me drop a point off the score of the film (laughs) (laughs) it made me so annoyed Um, I'm not surprised yeah it was very strange because I I was already like not having the best of time watching it then Matthew McConaughey just shows up out of nowhere I was like what what the how how did he get there yeah like because they gave him the jet like 
He sold but like they completely lost co- they completely lost contact with all of them. How did he know exactly where they were at that exact moment? They needed a beat. They needed a day with Sex Machina. That's why yeah. they did it. It's so dumb. It's very strange to me that, um, that Ben Stiller's character, Tug Speedman, so he gets captured by this this heroin uh, cartel or whatever, and um, he stays there. And they make him put on the the only movie that they've seen is one that he made was like a parody of like of Mice and Men. Um, Simple I think Jack. it's meant to be a parody of Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, yeah, that. And um, they were like, "Yeah, we love Simple Jack," and so he just plays like that play or that movie to them like every five times a day. He says, and he's gone for like a day, maybe. But he, when when he's rescued, he won't come. He's like, I get um, five years a day here. I can, I'm, I found my calling. I found my purpose. I'm like, dude, how the hell have you developed Stockholm syndrome within the space of 24 hours? He has a son now. He's like, oh, I'm gonna name you Half Squat, and you can call me Papa. I'm like, you've been here like an hour. What the hell are you talking about? Yeah. I think that was just to set up the joke of him having the kid on his back, stabbing him, and then him throwing him over the bridge yeah also not funny i'm like oh you just toss a child over a bridge haha <laughs> that's like the kind of level of humor we're talking about here and it's permeated throughout the entire movie yeah yeah the humor is like the most surface level thing there's moments where they actually have like genuinely like really great well-written jokes but the majority of it is literally just really like cheesy first joke you think of when going sitting down and thinking of these things. Yeah. Ben Stiller's like out in the jungle and he like, he's out on his own and he kills a panda. And I'm like, what the hell? And the panda does not look real at all. It just looks like a, like a toy. And I'm like, maybe this would be yeah. fine for like the movie that they were shooting in the movie because that was very silly and very, um, it was like purposely bad. But this is happening in the movie that we're watching and it looks terrible. So, like, is that an intentional choice to make it, like, not look real? And then he wears it. It's like a suit. Who knows? <laughs> probably trying to cut costs. Yeah, probably. The budget was already pretty huge on the film. Yeah. How, how big was the budget? $92 million. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It made back um, 195 million in the end, so it made back its money by quite a lot. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I, I people like this movie. I think um, we're sort of in. I don't even know that we are in the minority, but I think that general audiences like this kind of movie, where it's not particularly challenging, and you can just like laugh at Jack Black doing the fart or whatever. Or going crazy because he's yeah. lost his heroin or whatever. And I think a lot of, to give this movie props, I think it was shot pretty well. And I think um, like there's nothing like bad to do with like much of the technical qualities. I didn't really care for the music. Um, I don't really even remember it, to be honest. It was very just action music, stock sounds. And um, got a lot of, a lot of money probably were put into like the pyrotechnics. They blow up a lot of shit. Yeah. In the movie. 
yeah, it's like a fairly competently made movie. Yeah, it's it's not a it's not a terrible movie. I wouldn't even really say it's a bad movie. Mm. I just don't think it's very good. It's like kind of like in the middle. It's pretty mediocre. It's like a fine time waster, but it's not something that I'd recommend like going out of your way to see. Like if it's just like you're bored, you're looking for something to kill time and it's on Netflix or whatever, then yeah, throw it on. But I wouldn't say like go out of your way to watch yeah. it. I'd be fine if it was just like a fun sort of time waster, but it sort of feels like overly long as well. Yeah, definitely. It's like an hour and 40, yeah, he, 40 minutes long. I'm like, you just could have been like a cut out. Off. Yeah, you could have cut out at least 15, 20 minutes maybe. Yeah. There was a um, director's cut as well that's 20 minutes longer, and I'm definitely glad I didn't watch that because yeah. that would have been too much. That would have been, yeah, for sure. I intentionally went out of my way to watch the theatrical version because <laughs> everywhere I was looking, it was just the director's cut for some reason. Yeah, I think if it was just a bit tighter, if they uh, cut down some of the scenes or like removed entire scenes, like you just... Some of them don't even need to be there, you know. Yeah, I'd say the film is worth watching just for Robert Downey Jr.'s performance alone. Yes. Obviously, it's um, um, saw him at an Oscar nomination. I think it's one of two times he's been nominated. <clears throat> and yeah, he's really good in the film. He is, yeah. I think whenever I... Sorry, whenever I see him in like anything outside of like a Marvel movie I'm like really looking for something different from him um, and I do think he delivers this uh, he delivers that in this and also like I watched Zodiac the first time a few months ago and um, he's very good in that as well yeah he is a great actor it's just a shame that he's like basically just done like in the last decade he's done like Iron Man and Sherlock Holmes yeah. and Doolittle this year. Yeah. He's not really like gone out and done other stuff because he's proved himself time and time again. He's a great actor. Like he um, was nominated for an Oscar in 1992 for the film Chaplin, in which he plays Charlie Chaplin, and he is yeah. incredible in that movie. And he, yeah, he's great in this film as well. Yeah, he he is a really really good actor. Hopefully now he's supposedly done with Marvel, he'll go on and do other stuff. Yeah. He's meant to be in a new Sherlock Holmes film next year. Oh, yeah. Um, but I'm hoping he expands and doesn't just play the same role again, essentially. Yeah, I don't really like those Sherlock Holmes movies, um, but he's no. probably the best part about them. If I had to point to something that's like grabs your attention and holds you, keeps you focused on it. Um, but I would like to see him. I, I still have to see Chaplin. I still want to see that. Um, but yeah, I would say branch out and do um, take more chances because I think people do just see him as Iron Man. But it's a very staple character, of course. But um, yeah, then you see like it's like with what Robert Pattinson has done. He's I, see, I think a lot of people still see him as like the Twilight guy. Um, I know, I know this because I've talked to people about it and they're like, oh yeah, that guy who did Twilight. It's like, no, he's he's branched out and he's done a lot of um, like really great indie movies as well. And he, recently yeah. he was in Tenet and he was good in that as well. And um, The Devil All the Time. 
Yeah, Good Time, Lighthouse, High Life, all really, really good films he's in. Yeah. Um, there's like a, there's a few other people. I was going to say there's a few other people in the film like I, that I really like, that I feel like are really underutilised in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Hader's in it very briefly, and I think yeah. his character is all right, but it's barely in the film. And I love Bill Hader, and it's a shame that he like barely gets any screen time. And also Steve Coogan, who I really, really love. Like I'm a huge fan of Alan Partridge, but he's like he's barely in the film, and the character's like so uninteresting and unfunny. Yeah, and it's such a shame that I don't think they utilize this type of humor as well. He feels really out of place in the film. I agree. The funniest part with him for me was when he died. Like that actually yeah, got that a is a great bit, to be fair. Because <laughs> I just like he he gets blown up, he steps on a mine. And then just it cuts to them, and they just stare at it, and they're like, "Oh well, there we go." Yeah. <laughs> and then Ben Stiller starts like licking his decapitated <laughs> head, which is just gross. Yeah, that wasn't funny. <laughs> God damn it. No, I'm not really a big fan of Ben Stiller, and I feel like this film's one of the reasons why, because mm. he he just seems to play the same character a lot of the time. Yeah, I do. I do like him in a few select films. He's good in the Royal Tenor Moms. He's good in um the Mywood stories, stories even. Yeah, that's basically it for me. <laughs> like I like him anytime he's worked with um Noah Baumbach, and in Royal Tenor Moms I love him, but nothing else really I like him in. No, he's just it's the same character over and over again, and it's not very funny either. Yeah, it's a shame because he directed the movie as well. So I'm like, here's your chance yeah. to like actually do something with a character that you've written for yourself. I Did he write himself? I don't know. But I mean, it's his movie. He, he, yeah, he was one of the writers. There's three writers on the film. Yeah, and it's like, oh, you, you, you have influence on yourself as a character, and you just write yourself as just this, and it's not very compelling. It's like quite boring and like very babyish humor i just don't really grab onto it all that much yeah directing wise he's he's not a bad director he's like he's fairly talented i wouldn't say he's great but he did this the two zoolander movies which i haven't seen the second one but the first one's okay he did the film the cable guy that i quite liked as well with um Jim Carrey and Matthew Broderick. Yeah. Um, he doesn't have like a great directorial style. He's not like a unique director, but in terms of like comedy directors, there are a lot worse out there. For sure. I don't, I wouldn't say like, God, Ben, just go out and like make like a movie like Mandy or something. But I don't want him to go out. As <laughs> I don't really like stick with what you're comfortable with, but just make it, we'll make it better than this, I guess. Yeah. There's some slight controversy surrounding the film as well over the character Al Pacino that Brandon T. Jackson plays. Oh, yeah. Because the role originally was offered to Kevin Hart, but he declined to play it because he didn't want to play a gay character. Oh, yeah. That's what it was, yeah. They made, like, a whole thing about that. I don't even think that was, like, well done. So for him to... For him, for Kevin Hart to say, no, I don't want to play this character, maybe that would have been fine 
but it was because he was gay. When I, I just think that there's like a moment when all the guys are together and they're having like a heart to heart, and like all of a sudden they talk about like, "Oh, you gotta, you gotta go back home, bro." And he's like, "Yeah, I gotta go back home. You gotta go back." Home. And then it's like, "Oh yeah, um, I've got a guy back home." It's like, um, "Yeah, I, I like this guy," and it's like, "What? You like a guy? What did you say? You like it? You like a guy? Oh, oh, dude." I'm like, that's not funny, man. Like, the punchline was that he was gay. No. Like, who cares? Yeah, it's such a cheap joke. It's really bad. It's not funny at all. That's aged terribly. Yeah, definitely. As has most of the film. This is very, very representative of late 2000s comedy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't hold up in 2020 that well at all. I would say, like, I had a thought while they were, um, I was watching this, and it's the point where um, Steve Coogan's like, um, yeah, we've rigged up all these, all these cameras around, so, um, like, we're making it more authentic. They, like, plunge the actors into, like, real action is what the author tells him to do. He's like, you you got to put them in the real action. And I'm like, well, if they're competent actors, then they should have just done a good job in the first place. But if they, like... Clearly they're not, so why did you even hire them? But then Yeah, I think the point was that they're more they're more like big stars than like great actors. Yeah. But there's like there was a point where they're talking about like the cameras that have been set up in the jungle. And I just thought maybe this would work better as like a mockumentary. Yeah, most likely. It probably would have like felt more real and it probably would have been funnier. I think. Yeah. And it would give it like a more distinct style. It would stand out a bit more. Yeah, definitely. It would be more interesting. I think it would hold the test of time a lot better as well. For sure. Maybe that should have been the director's cut. Maybe. There's like a part Um, where... um, Sorry. There's like a part where Danny McBride, because he's in this film, um, I don't really like Danny McBride. Um, in really anything no. I've seen him in. Um, but he's like, that's the signal when he sees um, uh, the director waving his arms about. And then he lights up a bunch of pyrotechnics and there's like big controversy about it, about how they're like wasting um, resources and they didn't catch any of it on film. And I'm like, well, wouldn't you have come up with a clearer signal to know when the, the, the pyrotechnics were going to happen? Because they set off a lot of, a lot of bombs there, it goes up in flames, and I'm like, surely with all that money on the line, you would have come up with some like a better signal, or like even better, just like radio in and say, yeah, do it now. Yeah, there's a lot of that in this movie. There is. I got the feeling yeah. like, oh well, wouldn't they like all have PTSD after this? Because they get into some serious <laughs> shit, but it's like all like, oh, it's funny though. It's like, well, I'd be pretty traumatized if I went through this, to be honest. Guess that's just what comedies are like, though. Yeah, there's not like a ton of thought put into it. It's more like just get to the next gag, and um, like when they're talking about like we rigged these cameras in the all over the jungle. It's like, well, you had this conversation like last night. Did you do that all in like the space of? 
like a few hours? Did you rig all those cameras? Up? Yeah. Like, did you do that? Just like the two of you? I don't like this movie, <laughs> really. No. Have you got anything else to say before we just move to ratings? Because I think I'm pretty much done with everything. Um, I probably had a bit more to say, but honestly, I can't be bothered. <laughs> yeah, we'll get onto ratings. Yeah. Um, it's not a terrible movie. I just wouldn't say it's that great. There's definitely worse comedies from this time you could pick to watch, but there's also a lot better. Um, I'd even say a better action comedy from around the same year, I believe, was Pineapple Express. That's not a great movie, but it's a lot funnier than this, and it's a lot more competently made. Not to say this is like a badly made movie because the action and everything is well made. I just don't think it's that well written. Um, I'm going to give it five booty sweats out of ten. Yeah, booty sweat. Jesus Christ. That was like also like a parody of product placement. So I sort of, it wasn't very clever, yeah. but you know, it was there, I guess. Um, I, so I, I feel like I feel the same way. I wasn't really invested. Maybe if they cut like 15 minutes off, it would have been a bit more brisk if they'd um, cut down some scenes or just like made the writing better, just paid attention to some of the finer details. Um, I think Ben Stiller, keep making movies if you, if you want to um, just make them better, I guess. Um, yeah. I didn't really get all that much out of it. I was quite, bored when it got to like the halfway point and I was like oh I've still got like an hour left um, um yeah I'm, I'm don't really have all that much to say on it but yeah I would give this five booty sweats out of ten so nice wonderful so so while we were recording that, we actually got a message from the grave, from beyond the grave, from Connor that he wanted to share to the audience. Oh my God. He's back. Yeah. What does he have to say? All right, boys. And anyone else listening, hopefully I've sent this in time that you're still on the podcast talking about these three movies that I unfortunately didn't watch. Um, I've actually been stuck on the toilet for the past week, just like continuously shitting myself. My housemates have just been bringing me up food, and it's just like a machine, it goes in one end, just comes out the other, it's like a shotgun. Um, not ideal. So I'm pooing blood as well. Um, yeah, but anyway, I can't wait for the next batch of movies to watch. Um... I've brought a, a list out myself of the worst films that we can watch. Midsummer is at the top of that list. Along with the piano. And that 50, The Forbidden Planet. Funny enough, they're all Max's films. There we go. Wow. That's um, all Connor has to say. That was really sad. Um, we pray for your eventual... Um, release from the, the grips of the toilet. Thank you for sending in that message. Good friend. 
Yeah. And also you're wrong. But I don't really want to get into that. So um, next week we'll be doing recommendations again. And we're going to go in the same order. So me, Max, and then Connors, which um, I've completely forgotten, but I think you remember it, Max. So my um, recommendation is a film I watched about four or five years ago. I just happened to stumble across it on Netflix one day and it um, made me get into this director who I've watched nearly all his films now and really enjoyed all of them. It's a film called Blue Ruin, directed by Jeremy Saulnier. I don't know if you've seen the film, Max. I have not, but I've seen it um, in passing on Netflix. Um, Yeah. The director also did a film called Green Room that I really, really like. Oh, right, yeah. I still have to see that as well. Nice. So yeah, Blue Ruin is my pick. It's on Netflix for anyone that wants to watch it. I am looking forward to re-watching it. Hopefully it holds up because I remember loving it, um, but the reviews I've read seem fairly mixed, so it should be interesting. Yeah, nice. Um, My film is one I I saw for the first time recently, um, but I I thought um, it'd be... Pretty good to discuss. Um, I don't think uh, you or Connor have seen it, um, but it's a comedy action movie uh, directed by Martin McDonough and um, from the year 2008 called In Bruges. Oh, nice. I've wanted to see that for a long time because I love Martin McDonough. Yeah. Three Billboards and Seven Psychopaths, both great. Yeah, Three Billboards is probably my favourite of his. I really love that movie. But yeah. And of course, um, Connor could not be here with us today, but he did tell us ahead of time what his recommendation would be. And it is the uh, 2015 movie directed by, oh, Jesus Christ, how do I pronounce this? Baltasar Kormakur. I hope I said that right. Probably not. Uh, called Everest. So we'll be talking about all those movies. Next week, hopefully, yeah. if this recording goes to plan this week, as it did not last week. If it doesn't, we'll just have to cancel the podcast. Yeah, I'll be very disheartened, very upset. Yeah. So we go next week. If you want to join in with the conversation, check out Blue Ruin, um, In Bruges, and Everest. Thank you very available much. somewhere. Yeah, Blue Ruin is on Netflix, as is Everest. Um, in Bruges, I have the DVD, but I got it from like CEX, it's very cheap. So if you live near a CEX, uh, pick it up. If not, um, I'm sure you can rent it. It's probably somewhere. It's, it's not like an unknown movie. Thank you for no. listening. And we will see you next week for episode eight. Bye. Yeah.